0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Coogee Voice. Today, we're talking with Ed Cowper author of Facts and Other Lies. Welcome to the disinformation age. In today's show, we unpack fake news and the impact it's having on our society. You're listening to Coogee Voice. <laughs>
1: The thing that's going on is is the way we get our information has broken down and it's led to all of these really harmful consequences where we we try to have conversations about important issues in society and and people are just in their own little bubbles uh, that are often fuelled by fake news and, and misinformation. In the news at the moment is obviously gun violence That's just a reality. There's no corner of the US that is immune to it. And you don't want to be in a situation where you send off your kids to school in the morning and say goodbye to your partner in the morning and just genuinely not know if you're going to see them again.
0: Ed, welcome to Coogee Voice. How are you going today?
1: I'm very excited to be with you here, Marjorie, on Coogee Voice and uh, speaking to you, the people of Coogee.
0: <laughs> Thank you for being here. You do live around the eastern suburbs. So before we get into facts and other lies, what do you love most about the east?
1: Uh, we'll get into some facts before we uh, get into the lies. <laughs> uh, yes, I was, I was born in Kensington. Went to UNSW, have always lived uh, around here. Other than for the last 10 years, I've been in, uh, in New York. And when I moved back here with my American wife, I thought you've got to put on the best show that Australia can offer. And what more could you want than to bring it back to the eastern beaches and the beautiful uh, part of the world that it is and the quality of life we enjoy here?
0: If there was anything you could change about the eastern suburbs, what would it be?
1: Uh, probably another public high school. Uh, that's one piece of culture shock we had moving back was every single conversation we have is about, uh, where are going to send our kids to school? And, uh, one of them hasn't even started primary school yet. So plenty of time to be talking about that, but, uh, that is the the weird obsession of the Eastern suburbs.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Now you just mentioned you've been living in the States for the last 10 years. What motivated you to move home?
1: Well, very good question. There's a number of things. I'll start by saying that the US is a wonderful country, uh, had a wonderful time there, and it really does have you know the best of everything on offer there. But at the same time, I think they get a lot of the really important things wrong. And at the end of the day, those are things that Australia gets right. So one example is in the news at the moment is obviously gun violence. That's just a reality. There's no corner of the US that is immune to it. And you don't want to be in a situation where you send off your kids to school in the morning and say goodbye to your partner in the morning and just genuinely not know if you're gonna see them again that night. And even outside of that, just the normal of experience of of going to school in the US is these awful drills where they've shown that kids are traumatized by that. So that's part of it. But there's, you know, some of the other really important things are how we deal with um, you know, healthcare and and support we give to families and, and the emphasis we put on the quality of life that it really should be family first and and work second. And really the culture in the U.S. is work first and, and family second. It's not a very family-friendly policies in the workplace. Um, Health care costs are, th- are through the roof. And so those are pretty important things, and, and we get those right in Australia, I think.
0: And the U.S. is now the only OECD country that has zero paid parental leave.
1: That's right, there are some countries that are very far down in the, the rankings in terms of GDP per capita have still managed to do that. Just another example of things, you know it's a kind of a badge of honor if you go back to work a couple of weeks after having a baby, probably because you've got to pay for the 40 or fifty thousand dollars it just costs you to, to go into hospital and, and, and have one so. People live their lives under enormous amounts of crushing debt, and um, yeah, there's a a better way of doing things.
0: I could probably talk all day about the US, but that's not what we're here to talk about today. We're here about your book, Facts and Other Lies. Firstly, for our listeners, give us a recap, uh, overarchingly, what is the book about, but also what inspired you to write it now?
1: Well, the the subtitle of the book is is Welcome to the Disinformation Age, and that's really what it's about. You know, if people think about what they see around them these days, that uh, they might not have seen in the last few years. So, all of these new fringe conspiracy theories seem to be much more common. You have got people trying to overthrow the U.S. Capitol on January the sixth. We've got convoys to Canberra full of anti-vaxxers. We've got. Uh, you know, the completely different world we live in. All of these things are related to each other, just symptoms of something much bigger that's going on. And that's what the book is about. The, the thing that's going on is, is the way we get our information has broken down and it's led to all of these really harmful consequences where we, we try to have conversations about important issues in society and, and people are just in their own little bubbles uh, that are often fueled by fake news and, and misinformation.
0: You've just brought up the term fake news, uh, famously dubbed by Trump. And I was living in the States when Trump got elected uh, and had a, you know, front row seat to what was happening there. What do you think has been the implications of fake news, particularly, I think, to our broader society and how we are now able to address and tackle other issues and challenges that we have? for example climate change
1: and every issue really because the consequence of that and you know fake news as a term is now thrown at real news you know as an insult but uh, you know what we're talking about is is fake fake news people who are trying to spread faulty information for some kind of nefarious purpose and it's broken down something fundamental that we had in society and that was really a shared baseline understanding and a starting point to then argue around and have conversations around. So for climate change, for example, you you wanna, you want want to have a situation where we all agree on the facts and we might have disagreements on what to do about them. So, you know, we all know climate change is here. We're already seeing the impacts. You know, maybe this policy is going to be more effective. Maybe this policy be fairer. And that's the conversation you want to have. But the way that we form opinions and share opinions now mean that you and I might agree that climate change is real, but someone else over there can get whatever information they want from the internet and social media and live in a complete parallel reality where climate change isn't real or is part of the natural you know cycles of weather. And so rather than being able to debate with them about what we should do about this as a society, we kind of just lob potshots at each other from inside our own tribal fortresses around these these realities that never intersect. So that's a good example on on any issue is the same. When something important happens like the pandemic and you want people to follow public health advice to save lives, that trust in in information has eroded and people said, well, I don't want that fact. I'm going to go and shop around for my other facts that say something else on on social media until I find the information that I want rather than, you know, accepting reality for what it is.
0: You've thrown a lot at us just then. I think the first thing I want to unpack further is the role that social media has played and is there a way that we can control it, reel it in, fact check, (laughs) manage it?
1: Yeah, it's a big it's a big part of the explanation for why this situation has occurred. So we used to get our information from the same place as each other. Maybe the nightly news or the newspaper. There's very limited number of sources we could get information from. Now, since the internet has come along, there's infinite number of places we can get our information from. And then on top of that, there's such a volume of information that we have outsourced the categorization of that information to the social media platforms and their algorithms. So their algorithm is just a bit of code that says, okay, uh, here's what we know about Marjorie, here's the thing she's interested in. So we're going to choose for her to put these things at the top of her feed because that's what we think she's going to find most interesting. Now that gives an enormous amount of power to that social media platform because it's determining your information diet. And so by consequence, it forms your reality, the way you see the world, the way you see climate change, the pandemic, any new issue that comes around. And that's an incredible amount of power that you cede to to what is a, a bit of computer code that doesn't factor in things like is this a neo-Nazi group I'm offering to you? Is this, you know, some conspiracy website or is it the ABC or the New York Times? They they don't, you know, factor any differences there in the quality of information that you're getting.
0: So, Ed, is there a need for legislation that controls what information is published on social media and around controlling these algorithms so that people aren't sucked down these vortexes of disinformation?
1: Well, the scale of the problem is so big, we need to do a lot of different things. So one of them, yes, is regulation. Governments need to do a much better job. So basically, we have taken the town square and put it on these social media platforms, but they're not designed to play that role. So the traditional media used to do that, and in exchange, we set regulation of them. We said there were parameters of things that you couldn't, couldn't say, and there are standards that you have to uphold, one of which is it it has to be truthful. We've taken that role and we've put it on social media and we just haven't asked for the same things in return. So obviously it's a bit of a delicate balance between making sure that you're not censoring anyone, but at the same time, it's a real public health aspect. You can't go and say anything in public if it's going to cause harm. And you shouldn't be able to go and say anything on social media if it's going to cause harm. We've got to apply the same standards there.
0: All right. But long before social media, we've had Murdoch, we've had Fox. What role have they played in this disinformation and fact-sharing
1: well, we can't have this conversation without acknowledging their role in this, not just in creating the situation, but also being the beneficiaries of the way that we get information now. So the internet came along and it collapsed the traditional news business model. And at the same time, Rupert Murdoch cottoned on to the fact that instead of news, if you give people really hyperpartisan, inflammatory information, whether it's true or not, that's actually very profitable. And he built that in in the US with Fox News, and then we imported it here with Sky News. So a lot of people don't realise they see Sky News here as having a very small TV audience, even though much larger than it should be. And they don't realise that where Sky News gets all of its audience is on YouTube. And it's the same algorithms that promote it. And the content they have on YouTube... It's not about Australian issues or what's in the the political cycle here. It's all the Trump-style US conspiracy theories, QAnon, election fraud, anti-vaccine things. And they just import that over here. And it is incredibly engaging and incredibly popular on social media platforms. And that's where they get all their audience.
0: Ed, we can look back on the most recent federal election and one of the biggest... I guess, talking points, is, has been around distrust in our politicians and a move away from all major political parties. What do you see as implications for this, for the destabilisation of democracy and our political systems more broadly?
1: Yeah, and it's not just the the movement away from trust in politicians. It's a, it's a breaking down in trust in a lot of things, And the media and journalism. Uh, journalists who used to be among the most trusted people in society have seen their trust levels plummet too. And it's for a similar reason that um, politicians' uh, trust is at, at rock bottom as well. Is that these shifts in getting our information from social media has allowed people to get whatever information that they want to reinforce their worldview and then weaponize it against others And so what we've seen is people have done this in an organized fashion and they have weaponized it against the political class, even when they come from the political class. You know, Trump wanted to drain the swamp. He was the swamp. He was a New York billionaire and politician. You don't get any more swampier than that. And all the other Republicans there who rail against politicians, you know, which they are. And that has a real effect. And we have imported a lot of that here. You know, Scott Morrison, one of the mistakes he made in this uh, election was, was saying Australians don't want government in their lives. I think Australians did want government in their lives. We went through unprecedented challenges and we looked for political leadership to help get us out of it. But when you have deliberately gone around and trashed the political class, then the, people don't have that trust that you need then when it's called upon. And so it's not just politicians, they've trashed the media's reputation as well. And again, that's very dangerous because we get life-saving information from the media and we get the information that forms opinions about the world around us from the media and journalists. And They do a fundamentally important job in society. So we've got to restore trust in media, politicians, but also just trust in information that we see so that we can agree on what's a good piece of advice when we see it or an important piece of information when we see it.
0: Ed, you've opened the door. Life-saving information. We have to talk about anti-vaxxers. The eastern suburbs has some of the lowest vaccination rates across Australia. I think we all know someone in our life. They could be our sister, our sibling, our cousin, our grandma, someone who has been sucked down a conspiracy theory, QAnon or not. Your book provides some tips around how we can engage in meaningful conversation with people. Give us the advice.
1: And this is one of the most common questions I get. I say, my aunt, my sister, my brother, my colleague, everyone knows someone. They say, they've got these crazy theories. What do I do? And unfortunately, what we tend to do by our instincts is wrong. Right? We want to either cut these people out of our lives or we want to focus on the differences in our opinion and we want to point out just how wrong they are in order to prove just how right we are. And the only effect that that has is it drives these people away from us and towards each other. And now that they can connect in these filter bubbles on social media – They might have lost their job over their vaccine uh, hesitancy, or they might have lost friends and family, but those are very important social bonds, and so they go and find them online, and then they get in their trucks and they drive to Canberra and form very passionately held rallies where they form new tribes around that, and then they are completely cut off to any outside thought and any counter-opinion, and they just reinforce those views, so that's not the answer. Instead of focusing on the differences, we've got to try and find out what we have in common with people who who have those sorts of opinions. So it might be some shared value around caring about each other's health or caring about their kids' health. Even though we reach completely different conclusions, we both share a concern for our kids' health. Now, I'm concerned for my kids' health, so I might get them vaccinated. They might be concerned for their kids' health about the vaccine, so they don't. So we focus on our shared concern rather than focusing on the difference. Or they might be skeptical of pharmaceutical company motives. Now that that might be rational, even if they, you know, have some irrational conclusion about it. So we've got to start by focusing on what we have in common before we get to the the things that we have different. And the other thing we've got to do is not have those conversations in public not have those conversations on social media where we might see those opinions because the incentives there are to be right and broadcast your opinion. Nobody's ever said on a Facebook comment, oh, that's a very good point. You know what? You're right. I think, uh, I, think I might've been wrong on that one. That's, that's not what we do. But we do that all the time in one-on-one conversation. One-on-one conversation in private, you want to find common ground. So we've got to try and go and have those difficult conversations one-on-one with people and focus on what we have in common.
0: So Ed, just to be clear, the reason why COVID was so high in the eastern suburbs has nothing to do with the bats in Centennial Park.
1: No, but that is a great story and that's what our brains love and that's why we get drawn to conspiracy theories. So the truth is much more mundane. Nobody wants to stand around gossiping about uh, peer-reviewed studies in medical journals that Piece by piece added to a body of epidemiological knowledge, right? It's not a good story, but bats in Centennial Park, that's a great story. Hillary Clinton keeping kids locked in a basement to harvest their uh, adrenaline to defy her aging is a great story, even if it's not true, right? So we love telling good stories. So that's another tip as well. Like, let's just make the truth more interesting, right? It's boring normally. We want it to speak for itself where conspiracy theories, great stories.
0: And if the vaccine was actually giving me 5G, I would have much better reception (laughs) sitting here right now. Ed, before I let you go, there are three questions we ask everyone that comes onto Coogee Voice. You must declare the best beach in the eastern suburbs, where you can get the best burger, and where sells the best coffee go.
1: Well, the best beach, I would have to say, I've changed my opinion on this since having kids. It's now Clovelly Beach. Very kid-friendly beach. The best burger, let's see, probably Betty's Burgers, I think, do a pretty good job of the American burger. And the best coffee is obviously Gordon's.
0: Ed, if people would like to get their hands on your book, where should they head to?
1: Any good bookstore. Maybe go for your independent bookseller, support local small business, or jump online. Get the audio book if you do a lot of driving or get someone else to read it to you if you don't want to let your eyes do the, the work for you.
0: Ed, thanks for joining us on Coogee Voice. Thanks very much. What a thought-provoking conversation. Now, if you'd like to learn more about Ed and his book, Facts and Other Lies, Welcome to the Disinformation Age, you can find him on Instagram at Ed Cowper. You've been listening to Coogee Voice. (laughs)